Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus. We're going to be finishing up, Lord willing, the book of Titus by reading the last few verses, verses 12 through 15. This has been a really challenging passage or a a challenging book Um, to my heart. I pray for you as well. If you are visiting here, welcome. Um, Members, I want to add one title tiny little um, comment to what Jaden said about the, the members meeting on December 3rd, the, the business meeting. Um, it, everyone's welcome to attend, just the members are the only ones that are allowed to vote. We have budgets in the back um, by the, the offering boxes, so please take one. Um, a big, the, the focus of that meeting will be to review the budget, the planned budget for 2024, and to, to vote on that together. So we'll have the time on December 3rd to Discuss if you have questions about items in the budget. So we're going to be reading Titus 3, 12 through 15. And in these closing words, Paul, I want, to, I want you to really focus in on verse 14 as we, as we read. Because he's presenting two concepts that are really important that um, I think flow throughout the entire letter. And will provide a little bit of a review for us. And hopefully help us understand um, the great theme that Paul is trying to communicate to us that we would um, apply to our lives. Let's read and then I'll pray. Starting in verse 12. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn, listen to this here, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Father, you are so holy, so great, so mighty. And we see your holiness, your great, your might, most clearly in the cross of Christ and what he has done. Help us to see the transforming power of the gospel. Help us to see the way that you work in us to do good works. Help us to see that apart from you, we can do nothing. Help us to see that we are your people because you have been kind to us. Help me, God, to to be clear. May your word shine forth. In Christ's name, we pray, amen. All right, so specifically looking at verse 14, Paul says something that I think caused me to pose a question I think you should ask yourselves, this question. Why does Paul say, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Why does he say, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works? That's an intriguing statement, he says, um, or that, that he makes there in, in verse 14. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. He doesn't say, let all people learn to devote themselves to good works. He doesn't say, let everyone learn to devote themselves to good works. 
On one hand, you've got to understand, or I understand, that good works, they're good, aren't they? They're good things for people to do. If there's a target laid out, nobody wants to be understood or seen as a bad person. Good works are good to do. And, that, and from, from the letter to Titus, good works are a, a main theme that Paul is communicating. Six times he charges, um, he uses the word, the, that statement, good works. It's an expectation of the Christian. They're good to do. But why would Paul limit what he says about good works by saying, let our people learn? Why our people? Why should our people learn to devote themselves to good works? I think if we understand why Paul says our people should learn to devote themselves to good works, I think we'll understand the heart of the letter. So let's look at that. Let's, let's, the goal, I think, is to answer that question. Why does he say our people? Why does he say let our people learn? Um, I want to look at that by, by answering two questions about who these people are, and then hopefully we'll be able to answer the question. Who are these people? Two, two statements about who these people are, and then we'll be able to hopefully answer that question in verse 14. Who are our people? First, our people are those who love us in the faith. Our people, as you see in verse 15, are those who love us in the faith. Let's read verse 15 again. All those who are with me, this is Paul speaking to Titus, send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. So he says specifically to Titus, you should greet those who love us. In other words, Titus is to give um, a charitable greeting to the people in the church who love the messengers of the gospel of Jesus. Paul is one of those, those messengers are, and, and those who he worked with. You can see a few names of them. We don't know a lot about other, the other messengers of Paul, but there's four of them listed here. There's Artemis and Tychicus and Apollos and Zenos. There's a band of apostles, of Paul was, or missionaries. Paul was not by himself in, in going around the, the regions of uh, Asia Minor and spreading the gospel. He was with a group. And Paul doesn't say, greet those who love Jesus. He says, greet those who love us. And, and the reason I think he says that, if you remember, um, it, it, when he begins his letter, he calls himself a servant of God, an apostle of Christ, and he, he's, a, he's one who is commanded by God, our Savior, to preach the message of eternal life. So when Paul says, greet those who love us, Paul can say that because he is intimately and personally called to proclaim the gospel. He doesn't separate himself from the message that he's proclaiming. He's not a postal carrier. He's more like an ambassador or an emissary. And so he sees himself intimately tied to the gospel. And I think you can actually see that in verse 15 itself. Paul says, greet those who love us in the faith. In the faith. So these people love Paul in the faith. Some, most translations understand this to be a description of why these people love Paul. The reason they're able to love Paul. They love Paul in the faith. 
or they love Paul because they share a faith. They have a common faith, as Paul states to, t- to t- uh, Titus in one four. My brother in a common faith. That's what, how he describes himself, his relationship to Titus. So there's something that unites them together in love, and it is this faith, the faith. And without this love, without this faith in Christ, centered on Christ, no love shared. Here are some ways that Paul describes our people who love Paul and his missionary group throughout Titus. These people have believed in God, he says in in Titus 3.8. These are people who have believed in God. So in other words, they've, they've received a message that's been proclaimed by Paul and the apostles, the message of Jesus Christ, and they believed it. They said, I believe that. I'm signing on to that. They're also a people who submit to the, the teaching and the correction of, of the leaders of the church. In, in, Rome, uh, in, in, one, in one, uh, 5 through 9, Paul, a big reason Paul sent Titus to the island of Crete was because they needed to establish order inside the church. And so in order to do that, he has set up elders. And elders are set, to, set up to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that they might, meet, so that they might uh, give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. So to give teaching and to give correction. That's in Titus 1.9. So these people, they submit to this, this kind of teaching. They believe God. They submit to this teaching. So when Paul says, our people who love us in the faith, they're, they're people who have believed that message and people who have submitted to the teaching of the established leaders. As opposed to being insubordinate. You know, if you've been with us throughout this study, that two specific times Paul talks about people that are opposed to the message. They're insubordinate to the message. You can see that in chapter 1, verse 10 through 16, and chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. There's people, Paul knows that there's people in this church that are not um, submitted to the message of the gospel. They are not loving us in the faith. They are not our people. But our people... Submit to the teaching and correction of the elders. So much so that if they do wander into unprofitable things, as it says in chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, if they do wander there, when they're warned out of love so that they would return to the, to the, to the, to the teaching of sound doctrine, they return. They receive that correction. They don't continue in that way. They submit to the teaching and, and correction, which is uh, from, from the, their leaders. And, and, and they submit to this teaching and their correction, not because their teachers are great or because there's something really special about them. It, just as in there's nothing really special about Paul himself. He's an apostle of Jesus. He's, he's called by God. It's the message that, that, that he's proclaiming that makes him special. He's not special. Same thing with these teachers. These teachers who they submit to are supposed to teach because the teachers are supposed to teach things that align with sound doctrine. That's a clear thing that Paul alludes to in uh, Titus 2 verse 1. If you remember there, Paul tell, told Titus, teach things that accord with sound doctrine. You've got a guideline, buddy, that's going to help you stay in track and, and, and and the people are going to only, should only follow your teaching if you're teaching what accords with sound doctrine. 
It's got to be aligned with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is the true teaching about Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection from the dead, and everything that points to and flows from that, from, from the work of Christ. So the things that align or agree with sound doctrine are the behaviors which are shaped and aligned by the sound doctrine of God. You've got something to model your teaching off of, buddy. That's good. That's good, Titus, for you to, to teach. And that's good for teachers to teach within the church. This Thursday, or maybe when you were creating pie for the turkey trot, I don't think anybody made a pie without a pie pan. If you did, I would love to see it. I dare anybody to try to make a pie without a pie pan. You're going to mold this dough. You're going to put lard and flour and sugar and what else do you need in it? I don't know. Um, and you're going to freeze it because you don't want, when, when it gets in the oven, you know that that lard or that butter, it's going to melt and it's going to, you don't want it to melt out of your crust. So you freeze it so it gets really hard. But if you put that pie crust in the oven without a pie pan, you're going to have a pizza. Pie pizza. Sounds pretty good still. It's not going to hold its shape. It's not going to, if it's not, if what you're teaching, if what you're, if what you're promoting isn't shaped by something solid, something, something rigid, something gospel, it's, it's not going to hold its shape. It's going to be flat and it might, it might appease you. It might satisfy you for a little bit, but it's not necessarily going to be true. We want things that are true. So we shape our lives on sound doctrine, and we shape our teaching. How should we live based on the sound doctrine of God? A real practical example that Paul gives is um, in, in the beginning of chapter 3 of this letter, he, he says, an ex- example of, of, a, of a life that's shaped by sound doctrine, behavior that's shaped by the gospel, he says, you should treat others outside of the, of the church with kindness even if they don't deserve it. Undeserved kindness. And then he gives an example of God who showed kindness, undeserved kindness to us. That's the pie pan. Show kindness to those who don't deserve it. Shape what you do based off of what God has done for you. He gives us a model of sound doctrine shaped, or of things that accord with sound doctrine shaped by the gospel. So that's uh, the way that they should teach. Teachers teach well if they're teaching according to sound doctrine. But there's another way. So, so the, the, they love us in the faith, right? This is, this is who these people are. They love us in the faith. But, but remember the, the, the entire point I was trying to make. These people, our people, love us in the faith because of God's grace. So there is something that they do. They, they love us in the faith, but it's because of God's grace. In verse 15, Paul says at the very end, he says, grace be with you all. And Paul says, grace be with you all, or grace with you at the end of um, every letter that, I, that I'm aware of. And it's not a throwaway statement. If you've read the, Paul's letter to Titus in, in whole, you will know that this isn't a wasted or a meaningless statement. When Paul says, grace be with you all, to close this letter, he wants the Cretan Christians, he wants you and I to say, yes, grace is with me. Praise God. That's, 
I think, what Paul wants you to think when he, he says grace be with you all because grace is the thread that binds everything in this, in this letter, everything in the Christian life together. Our people love us in the faith because of God's grace or because of the work of God's, faith, God's grace, there, is, there, are, there exist people who love us in the faith. What is God's grace? God's grace, as described throughout this letter, is the unearned goodness and loving kindness of God. He says that in three verse four, chapter three, verse four. It's a special kind of kindness. God loves all of us. God is gracious to all of us in the world in some way. If you're living and breathing, that's kindness. But it's a special kind of kindness. Paul wrote to God's elect or God's chosen ones, people that can say, God saved me. I didn't save me. God did a wonderful work to save me. This grace was promised before the ages began, it says uh, in verse 2. Promised before the ages began. This hope of eternal life. It was a merciful act, an extension of favor and kindness that I can't take credit for. And then Paul says, not only was this promised grace, he says it appeared, it appeared in Titus 2.11, Paul says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, bringing salvation to all people. And we know that God's grace appeared in the appearance of Jesus Christ into the world. Christ lived a life you and I could not live. He died a death that you and I deserve to die. Verse 14 of chapter 2 says that Paul, or God, Jesus, goodness, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ did the work. Christ paved the way for the Spirit. It is is, uh, the Spirit who is poured out. This is chapter 3, verse 6. The Spirit who is poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. The Spirit works within you, washing you and renewing you. That's Titus 3, 5, and 6. The result of this is found in Titus 3, 7. You're justified by his grace. You're justified. There is no condemnation for you in Christ. God sees you as righteous because of Christ. That's good news. That's grace. All the result because of what Christ has done God in Christ, by the work of the Spirit, life for for us. They love us in the faith because of the work of God's grace. The second thing about this this point here that I'd like to make is that our people, those who learn to devote themselves to good works, they do so because of God's grace. Our people learn to devote themselves to good works because of God's grace. 
Let's, let's look at grace first, because there's one point, if you've been studying along in Titus, that I left out. What is it about God's grace that makes a person able to devote themselves to good works? Am I saved, and then am I left on my own to fend for myself? Or is God's work working in me still? In Titus 2.12, Paul says that God's grace, which appeared, is training me. It's working in me. God's grace, it's a redeeming, and it does a redeeming and purifying work. It's making me zealous for good works. It makes me ready for every good work so that I can devote myself to good works. Through the the work of the Spirit in me, I'm being trained. Through the power of of God's grace, which is still working in me, I'm being trained. I'm growing. Grace trains us. So we're not looking at good works as as if they're a command which we cannot um, do or will not do. The, The understanding of this is that because of the grace that saved and is still at work training me, I can view these good works and be empowered to do these, these good works, devoted to these good works, all founded on the, the grace of God in Christ. So he says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. What kind of good works is he talking about here? There's been three different ways that he, that he address, describes good works throughout the letter. Um, First, he talks about doing good works towards unbelievers um, in, in chapter 2, verse 10. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, um, there's, there's an understanding that we do good works towards other people, uh, unbelievers. So it's not like these are reserved necessarily f- for within the church. There are also good works that we do within the church. In chapter 2, verses 2 through, through uh, 9, we see that we're supposed to... Titus is supposed to model good works within the church. And, and, and there's people are, we're supposed to relate to one another by doing good works toward one another. However, the specific good work I think Paul is talking he, here about is doing good works towards other Christians outside the local church. Right before verse 14... Paul says, do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. So there's, just by the grace of God, as Paul's sending this letter, and he probably used these two guys to bring the letter to them. As, as he's sending this letter to them, talking about living a life and training this church up to, to be a people who are founded in the gospel and doing good works, he gives them an opportunity to display, to learn, to devote themselves to good works by showing good works. Um, most commentaries think that the good works they're supposed to show is specifically to these two guys, Zenos and Apollos. Speed them on their way, see that they lack nothing. So they can devote themselves to the good works of caring for these folks outside the church. There's some practical things that I think help us learn to devote ourselves to these type of uh, good works, uh, 
towards Zenos and Apollos, people, Christians outside the church. Josh Kewen, who's a, a, a member of our church, but he's, he's across the, the world right now. Others who we, can, who we can love, who are doing the work of ministry. I think what we, what we need to first do is see that we're a part of a great work. We're a part of a, a great work. We're, we're engaged in, in a global ministry, a global church. So here's these guys that they don't know, but they're, a part, they're, they're with Paul. They're, they're ambassadors for Christ. And so Paul says, you should engage in this. So in order for them to do that, they need to see that these, these folks are a part of the ministry with us. They have a place in Crete to serve the global church. And further, Paul also gives a practical qualification. He says they should seek to meet urgent needs or daily necessities. And this is helpful for for the church when they're thinking of these kinds of good works. Think about the urgent needs. Think about the daily needs. Jesus, uh, in the Lord's Prayer, told us to to give us, uh, we pray to God, give us this day, our daily bread. I think think Paul is, is, is telling the church here, you have an opportunity to be the hands and feet of Christ and provide for them their necessities. And a final practical thing about these good works that Paul calls them to is they see, he wants them to see that these are a part of fruit bearing, not, he says, and not be unfruitful. And this is really important to understand within the Christian life and within understanding good works in the, as, as heavily as they're commanded in Titus. Um, Jesus said in John 15, it's not on the screen, John 15, 8 though, he says, by this my father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus has an understanding that the Father is glorified when you bear much fruit. And and how do you prove to be my disciples, Jesus said? When you bear much fruit. So fruit bearing is a great goal and a command. And practically... I think Paul wants Titus and the Cretans to see that these good works are um, ways to make themselves, ways to be fruitful, to bear fruit as Christ has called them to. So, let's, let's, let's review real quick. We have good works, we have the, the command to do them, and he says our people should learn to devote themselves to good works. My question at the beginning is, why does Paul say that? Why does Paul say, our people should learn to devote themselves to good works? I think Paul's answer from from the entire letter is that only our people, only people who love the gospel message and those who proclaim the gospel, only those who have been gifted by the grace of God can learn to devote themselves to the kind of good works Paul is talking about. There's a verse that's going to be on the screen, Titus 1.16. I just want to spend a real quick moment talking about these people who are not um, believing in God, these false teachers. In Titus 1.16, Paul says that these, 
these people who are not our people, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable. They are disobedient. They are unfit for any good work. So that last thing that he says there, they're, they're, I want to hone in on. This is the only time this good works are you. Uh, well, it's, it's used as a standard here, but describing the false teachers. He says they're unfit for any good work. So why are they unfit for any good work? They're, in, they're unfit for any good work because they're detestable. They are disobedient. They have not aligned themselves with the message of the gospel of Christ. They have not received the grace of God. They are disobedient. Um, therefore, the conclusion is they're not fit for any good work. They may desire to do good works. They profess to know God, they, but they're not fit for any good work. They're not our people. They don't have a motivation problem. Maybe they really desire to do good works. They don't maybe have a, a, a focus problem. The problem is they have a gospel problem. The good works that Titus is described to Paul describes to Titus, they're only described of those who have first received the gospel message. Good works are the result of the gospel's work in a, in, in a person's life. You know the saying, put the cart before the horse? Maybe the false teachers put the cart before the horse, and maybe that's where you are. It's... it's, it's Maybe easy to be sometimes. I've got these flashy good works, and they're in this cart. And good people do good works. It's good to be loving to your neighbor. It's good to show kindness within the body of Christ. I've got these good works, and, and I'd love to, to display them. And I'm trying to pull them along. Put the cart before the horse. Maybe they've forgotten where these good works flow out of. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The false teachers, they're not fit for these good works. But our people are. Or people who are surrendered to the gospel of Jesus Christ can learn to devote themselves to good works. Without the gospel, there's no good works. Without God's grace, there's no good works. There's no growth, there's no maturity, there's no sanctification. So if you're there, if you're there right now, and you're, if, you're, if you're not in our people, maybe see the benefits of good works, see the kindness that flows out of the, the, from the Christian behavior, if that looks attractive, the first thing to do, we, we, we need to not put the cart before the horse. We need to understand where these things flow from. We need to see what God has done for us in Christ. Surrender to Christ. Surrender to the work that he has done. He saved us, not because of things that we have done. I'm not bringing good works to God so that he will love me. He loved me, and so I will follow. Our people are those who love the gospel and those who proclaim the gospel because of God's grace. We want to be that kind of a people. 
because of the work that God has done, we love and proclaim him. And our people learn to devote themselves to good works because of God's grace, because of the work that God has done for us in Christ. It is God's grace that is the reason Paul can call them our people. It is God's grace working in them that he says our people. And it's God's grace that's the reason that Paul can call them to learn to devote themselves to good works. Only those who receive the grace of God by believing and receiving the gospel can and should engage in this gospel ministry of doing good works. Let's put the work of Christ first and central. Let's put the work of Christ first and central in our teaching, in our outside ministry. If you're discouraged today, you're fighting sin, don't forget where your power comes from. The power to fight sin from the work of Christ working within me. We return to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and we centralize on that. And from there, we may learn, we may grow to devote ourselves to good works. Let's pray. Thank you for being kind to us, Father. In Christ, we can say the grace of God is with us. May we be a people who are zealous for good works because of the work of Christ. May we not be a people who forget the work of Christ and think that we are earning or we are growing in our own strength. May we look to Christ in our sin fighting. May we look to Christ in ministry. May we look to Christ as we seek to share his name with uh, others. In Christ's name we pray, amen.